so in the first song that we sang, Nartam Thakur mentions the human form of life and he stresses the importance of not wasting it. So this is a huge topic in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Perhaps we learn first that human life is as are all forms of embodied life in this world problematic and therefore we are not the body and the body's a problem and we have to deal with that this is kind of the introduction to spiritual life but in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's teaching this comes full circle and I'll try to say something about that it's very uh esoteric, very difficult to grasp, but we'll try to talk about it and see if we can get some insight into it. Of course, all forms of life are constituted of, we learn in Bhagavad Gita, the modes of material nature, all our movements, unai karmani sarvasa hankara vimudatma kartam timanyate, all just the movements of modes of nature. Krishna says the whole Jagat Mohitam, the whole world is bewildered by his trigunas, three modes of nature. We've heard the term. Our sense of self in terms of bodily identification is basically a psychic and physical expression of these three modes of nature. Three gunas, gunas, qualities. It means like strands, like types. A certain type of material influence, another type. Sattva, rajas, tamas. We should be interested in these topics. The great Mahabhagata, who brought down the whole of Srimad Bhagavat to us. Raj Parikshit, who inquired from Sukadev. He had some interest. You've all maybe read the fifth canto of the Bhagavatam. A good portion of that is based on the interest of Maharaj Parikshit as a good student of Sugadev in what Sugadev instructed him in the very beginning. In the second canto of Bhagavatam, we find Sugadev Goswami instructing Maharaj Parikshit to take note of the world. Look at it in light of its being a representation of God. We're told there the first step in God-realization, is to try to see the world in light of its 
divine connection and thereby it takes on a divine light and has new meaning to us. The Virata Rupa, Vishvarup is explained a universal type of way of looking at the world such that we can see it as a representation of God. Following this line of reasoning, not jumping ahead, by the time we reach the fifth canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, after Maharaj Parikshit has heard something about the world, he heard something about how different oceans were carved out by the chariot wheel of, what is his name? Escapes me. Who's chariot rivaled the sun at any rate after hearing that and the description of some of his wonderful characteristics in life and so forth Richard Marge inquired he said Bhagavato Gunamaye Aveshitam Mana he said with one's mind absorbed Mana Aveshitam in the material nature of God Bhagavato Gunamaye implying, as you have taught me, to absorb my mind in seeing the world in relation to God. He said, it's possible by this kind of absorption to actually come to higher understandings, realizations of God, of the personality of Godhead. Good student, Parikshit Maharaj was. And so he asked to hear more about material nature. He had an interest in it. We should be also a little interested in material nature. It's vast. In fact, Sukadeva Goswami replied that, to tell you the truth, he said, no one can describe it completely. I will try to say something, he said, according to what I've heard from the historians and the geographers. But in short, you should know that what it is is a transformation of the modes of material nature, the magic of these transforming modes. That's an interesting opening to a section that is often bewildering to devotees, especially in light of modern times in which we live, where it's not thought that the sun is closer than the moon <laughs> and so many other things that are described in that fifth canto. Well, uh, Sukadeva Goswami gives us an opening to think about it in different ways. In one way, really, he says, basically it's a transformation of the modes of material nature. But historians, geographers have described it in a particular way, so I'll try to explain according to what I've heard from them. We have to be a little open to modernization if we want tradition, spiritual tradition that we associate ourselves with, to appear and really to be vital in the times in which we live. And if we study it carefully, pay attention, we'll find that certainly it is. And there are many things that are non-essential, that essential teaching is couched in, and we have to sort all that out. This is what Bhaktivinoda Thakur called upon us to do when he called us to become Saragrahi Vaishnavs. Essential Vaishnavas, essence seekers, rather than Bharabhahi, who carries the heavy load of the sects 
baggage, so to speak. Baggage can be useful at a certain point, no doubt. But at another point, it may also have to be abandoned. A new suitcase, a new package, new baggage. And of course, those of us from America know that America is perhaps one of the greatest contributions to the world is packaging. So <laughs> it's not what's in the book, it's what's on the cover. Mandela knows that well. They make beautiful covers. Of course, the substance of the books are also very wonderful. So our tradition, Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, has been packaged in a particular way at a particular time, and we have to unravel that packaging and find the treasure, the present, the gift inside, and know how to take advantage of the gift and how to share it. Gifts are forgiving. So if we are to give to others, as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu so much implored us to do, what did he say? Bhārta bhūmite hoile manusya janma jār janma sārta karikār parūpakār. Prabhupāda said an interesting thing about this. The verse says, Mahaprabhu is saying, anyone who is born in Bhārata should understand the message of the Bhagavat and do parūpakār. Parūpakār means transcendental welfare work, the highest good do good for others, give that knowledge to others. About this, Prabhupada said, at one point he was so frustrated with the lack of response to his preaching in India that he said, this message of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has been transferred to my Western disciples for making this uh, known all over the world. Mahaprabhu's other prediction that our Guru Maharaj had so much to do with fulfilling under the inspiration of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur and Bhaktivinoda Thakur. So we're charged to some extent to find novel ways and means by our mentors in the line of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur to make this great gift of Mahaprabhu available. So we have to be a little bit thoughtful how to do that. There is somewhat of a historical and cultural bias through which the spiritual substance of the scripture presents itself. Bhaktivinoda Thakur has acknowledged this. And so we have to sort out sometimes, all the time, if we want to make progress, and especially if we want to represent according to time and circumstance. So I know, anyway, this fifth canto is sometimes a bit of a problem. Maybe Sukadeva has given us an opening. We can say, anyway, whatever. It could be this, it could be that. But what it really is, is a transformation of the modes of material nature. So what are those modes of material nature? How many times have we heard that? And what do we understand about that? And that's what we are in terms of our physio-psychological makeup. According to the Bhagavad Gita, there's something called sattva, something called rajas, and something called tamas. In the physical sense, this sattva is the intelligibility about an object. Every object has a capacity to make itself known, its presence known to our intelligence, to be acknowledged by us. So that quality, that essence of a material object that enables it to make itself known, that's called sattva. Maybe in scientific language it could be roughly analogous to something that's been called mind stuff. 
it's intelligibility, that which allows an object to make it uh, recognizable, to acknowledge its presence. The world does speak to us. And it also moves. Objects act and react. And this essence of all material phenomena is called rajas, that energetic essence, an essence of intelligibility, an essence of an energy essence. And there's something that resists movement also in material nature, the principle of inertia, and that's called tamas in the language of Bhagavad Gita. So that's what we're involved with, and it has its expression in the psychic dimension. This is on the physical dimension. On the psychic dimension, then these influences are sattva, clarity, as Prabhupada rendered it, goodness, because clarity gives rise to virtue. When we understand a thing properly, sattva also begets knowledge, happiness, rajas then is that troublesome psychic sense of longing, hankering. And Thomas, as Prabhupada called Raja's passion, Thomas' ignorance, that uh, really it's a diversion in many respects, diversion to sleep and wanting to get a, just get away from things, intoxication, ignorance, bewilderment. Sattva-rajas-tamas. These things have been also traced out by other thinkers to one extent or another. I want to speak a little bit about these principles such that we can have a sense of their universality. They're not just something out of a page of the Bhagavad Gita, some obscure terms that uh, are maybe uh, relevant today or maybe not. We find that most systems of thought are dualistic. They're a black and a white like Freud, for example, you have Eros and Phantos. So if we study this, we see that Freud's idea of Eros is very similar to the Bhagavad Gita's idea of passion. And Phantos, the death wish or urge to ignorance. Freud saw Phantos to be such that it expresses itself in human society really as a diversion to wasting time or intoxication. So where's the sattva? <laughs> like I said, most of these systems are dualistic. But in these dualistic systems of thought, many of them, there's a really a third thing as well, which is often somewhat relatively analogous to sattva. Freud, for example, he taught, and I'm not an expert on his teaching, but something to the effect that when these two, Thantos and Eros, are harnessed properly, then this is conducive to being a really productive individual. And that balancing, so to speak, of the two is somewhat analogous to sattva. Stabilizing quality, a sense of well-being that upon gaining, one feels good about doing good things. In the Taoism, we also have the yin and the yang, and it's thought that balancing the equilibrium between yin and yang, by attaining that, one enters into eternity. And sattva, of course, in the 
Vedanta is not in itself eternal, but it brings us to the brink of eternality. All this is important to us, these modes of nature, to understand them properly, to understand material nature. It's God's secondary nature, and we are wrapped up in it. And unless we can get some understanding of it, it would be difficult to disentangle ourselves if that's what we're supposed to do. If we're supposed to get out of the body and separate ourselves, now we'll see if we are or not, but at least at a certain point we think like that. The whole Varnashram system, another big topic, if you want to tell the world that this is how we should run the society, today's society works in a direction that in one sense is very much the opposite of what the Varnashram society advocates. Varnashram society appears to advocate segregation. It does. Segregation for the sake of a higher integration on a spiritual platform. But modern society today abhors segregation and is moving very fast in the direction of integration. We live in one world on the internet and you can interface with any culture and drive down the streets and you see the signs of like the radio station newscasters and there's always a black person and an Asian person and a couple of women and a man and equal opportunity and it's all about integration and here we're supposed to tell them you have to segregate everybody put the Brahmins over here and they eat there and the Vaishas over there and the Sudras there and but something about this integration that modern society advocates is certainly laudable perhaps many things one thing is that it's based on largely a sense that in spite of the differences that we perceive in others, we have a common ground in terms of our species. We're all humans. We all have our frailties. And uh, so we're all really one in a sense. And it's trying to, seeking to rise above the differences based on the common species that we all are part of. Bhagavad Gita, of course, seeks integration as well, but on a higher level, as a soul, on the soul platform. So it might be wise for us to, in one sense, encourage integration and finding the common ground that we have with one another and then go, just take it a step further. We have to think what the system, and I'm speaking about Varnashram to some extent, because it's all about the gunas and it's all about <laughs> what we're involved in, in terms of our embrace of material nature our present situation. Of course, the system of Varnashram has its origins in the Leela of Krishna itself. It superficially governs the Leela. Underneath, of course, the surface of the Varnashram and Krishna Leela, what's really propelling the whole thing is spontaneous love of Krishna, Krishna being in the center. But on the surface, Varnashram's existing there as well. Mahaprabhu rejected it on one level, but another level, it's also very important. And really what it's about, essentially, is becoming a, uh, a well-integrated person, if you want to use popular psychological terminology, to get rid of your psychological dysfunctions and so forth. And the general idea about it was, well, if you're in touch with the reality of your material situation, which you should be, this is the teaching of the Barnashram, really. 
that you're going to be a happier person. Because the whole system of Varnashram, which takes into consideration our psychological makeup and how the gunas are influencing it, the whole system in which one is encouraged to come to an understanding of those influences is subtly governed by sattva. In fact, it's considered within the system that to be properly situated materially in terms of your action corresponding with your psychological makeup is itself, whether it be as a vaisya or a sud or any subdivision of these things, is sattvic. Well, we might say that Bhagavad Gita teaches vaisya, dharma is rajasic and tamasic. Sudra dharma is tamasic. Brahman dharma is sattvic. All these, to be to understand where you are in all of this, and to come to grips with that, that act in itself is sattvic, because it makes you happy. And again, I'm just speaking in general terms. If what this object of the Varnashram is, is that you become and properly situated, this is why Bhakti Vinod Thakur wanted Daiva Varnashram. And that's why Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur tried to institute it. Because they knew, they understood, that although those who take Vaishnav Diksha and tread the Paramhamsa Marg, Rag Marg, the day they get their initiation, they are still a long way from that. They're much closer to that, no doubt, on that day, and every day thereafter, than they've ever been before. The distance we've gone to reach that point is far greater than the distance we have to go from there. But it's still a bit of a distance. It's a very high thing. Krishna Leela, Ragmarg. Such a high thing, so esoteric, so difficult to understand. And if you understand it theoretically, still very difficult to attain, more difficult to attain and to understand theoretically, to realize very high. We're fortunate to be involved, to have an opportunity. But they understood Bhakti Vinod Thakur, Bhakti Siddhanta Sastri Thakur, under his direction and all of his followers, that it's required that people be properly adjusted in terms of their psychology and their activity to be happy and to pursue spiritual life naturally. Therefore, so much stress was there on Adhikar and so much criticism of just going to the jungle and chanting Hare Krishna, putting on the dress of Rup Sanatan. That's the end. Such a high thing. And seeing that many people were doing that or weren't qualified for that, made a mess of the thing. The great and dignified teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had become such that it has been said that if a Bengali Vaishnav, Gaudiya Vaishnav, came to your door to beg alms and a pious, well-to-do Hindu heard from the door opener <laughs> they had in those days, the Sudra, uh, who's there? Oh, it's a, it's a Gaudiya Vaishnava. Oh, give him some food and send him away. They weren't interested in hearing anything from that kind of so-called sadhu. So you can imagine how this affected 
Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur and how he wanted to change that and bring dignity the world over the dignity to Gaudiya Vaishnavism that it deserved so this idea of Daiva Varnashram was actually for devotees that when devotees get involved become devotees they get their diksha and so forth we don't just give them some beads and say go sit in the jungle and chant so he arranged a whole mission to engage people in various ways in accordance with their psychology and so forth and so this is actually an important point. Again, an, uh, analogous to this to some extent is the very idea that if one is psychologically well-balanced, to that extent, they're more suited for pursuing spiritual life. And although they may pursue it without being so, that may be problematic, relatively speaking, along the way. From an absolute sense, well, if we get involved, then there may be some invisible advantage. But on the outside, we find... Let's be practical. Many devotees are having problems in their spiritual pursuit. The spiritual pursuit of Gaudiya Vaishnavism is really, it's all about love. Ragmarg, it's about love, and love is about giving. And so giving requires, if we're to be partaking of it, that we are happy ourselves in our own life. See, that's again the whole idea of the Varnashram, is... Well, if you get situated as you're supposed to be, you feel happy and your life works. And then it's possible for you to think about doing some good deeds, giving in charity or planting trees or let's go to the temple tonight. <laughs> I'm feeling good. My life's working. In transpersonal psychology, then, this uh, is a very strong point. And it's really a, very much analogous to what Bhagavad Gita is teaching, that to the extent that sattva influences your life, that balanced sense of being, you can actually successfully pursue something higher. Transpersonal psychology is a particular discipline that advocates that there is a transcendent ultimate reality that we are intended to pass into, and that's the enlightened state. But it looks at psychological life with that in mind, whereas traditional psychology, of course, doesn't acknowledge a transcendent reality, and that's a this transpersonal psychology is a fairly popular form of psychology in spiritual circles and spiritual circles that have become very prominent, like Buddhism. Such an interface the Western Buddhists have with psychology. No wonder its appeal. Because if in the course of pursuing my spiritual life I actually start feeling better and happy materially and in my body <laughs> rather than trying to get out of it and run away from it all the time then um, I feel encouraged to practice spiritual life to give which is again what spiritual life is all about so these concepts as you can see they're quite possible to interface them with the modern world other people are thinking about them in different language and maybe even working on them a little better than some of the devotees and one of the reasons for that, I think, is also that the ideal of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is so high, whereas the ideal of a lot of other transcendental disciplines is comparatively much lower. I mean, if we go from the world of uncontrolled senses to the world of controlled senses and mind to a liberated position beyond the form of the body, beyond form and name and qualities and so forth, I think a lot of people can kind of follow that logic. But when then you start from there, 
explaining that. And on the other side of that, there's a whole world of attachment, families. In fact, the ideal is people attached to their home and cows. That's Golok. <laughs> They're all attached completely to Vrindavan itself. How attached are they to Vrindavan? Even when Krishna left or appeared to, they didn't go. Imagine. <laughs> and we are taught to be attached to your hearth and home. This is a bad thing. And then we have to teach. But actually, uh, it's not that bad <laughs> if you just put Krishna in the center. And Krishna is, of course, a beautiful cowherder, flute player, very esoteric, very high idea. So people's heads start, they lose it there. Of course, <laughs> of course if we speak about it, there may be some benefit in terms of our theory from Sukriti, from association, from hearing something. If the speaker has something to share, then it's not limited to the person's capacity to intellectually digest what it is that speaker has to say. In other words, if he has something to share, he's sharing something through a logical explanation, but he's not sharing really merely a logical explanation, but something much deeper, more meaningful. If he has feeling for that, and for those whom he wants to share it with, then they, they partake in that, and over time it will show up. We may not be able to trace it out, how it happened, <laughs> where it came, but suddenly we find from Sukriti we come to Shraddha. It dawns on us. The idea is charming. Krishna. And suddenly we embrace all the logic of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. It makes perfect sense to us. Then we, we don't understand why everybody else doesn't understand it. It's so easy. We understand it to some extent. But the more we practice it and realize it, the more we'll be able to help others actually understand it by sharing, like I said, the good tidings that we ourselves are taking advantage of and feeling, sharing that with others. This is what the preaching is about. It's not just repeating something that you've heard. I mean, that's okay. It's good. Why is it good? Because it's good because if you repeat what you've heard, you might listen to it when it comes out of your own mouth. <laughs> and maybe something will go in. If you keep talking about it, then you have to look. I was just saying that, but I'm doing this over here. I have to change my life. <laughs> Preaching is good in the beginning and good in the end. It's good as an exercise for our purification. And ultimately, in the end, it's good as the overflow of our experience. It's the unavoidable overflow of our own experience. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu appeared as a Brahmana. He's the showing us his lila, sometimes called Acharya lila. The lila in which Krishna teaches... Somebody asked me the other day on the Sangha on the internet that uh, how do I surrender to Krishna? I mean, how many times have people asked that question and how many times do you think, well, that's a dumb question. I mean, you, you know, that's what we're doing. We're, But actually, it's not a bad question because Krishna told in Bhagavad Gita that we should surrender. Sarvadharman pritajamamekam sharanam. Sarsharanam means sharanagati, surrender. This is the stage on which the drama of bhakti is performed. To the extent that we are, have surrendered ourselves, and then we hear and chant and so forth, that's bhakti. So Krishna told like that, but that's the end of the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> so the encore appearance of Krishna, that is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, 
to show us how. So the simple answer to that question, how do I surrender to Krishna, is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has shown the example. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna himself. We sang earlier. Brajendranandan Krishna, the son of Sachi, same. And he appeared as a Brahman. Again, what we've been talking about, that Satvagun is the jumping off point. The point where matter touches spirit is Satvaguna. So we want to try to culture that Satvaguna. Become happy, well balanced, well integrated, so that we can happily make spiritual progress. But Mahaprabhu, of course, represents much more than Satvaguna. But it teaches us something, his appearance as a Brahman. Why Krishna is appearing as a Brahman? Krishna is a coward, a Vaishya. When Mahaprabhu was told by the astrologer who looked at his chart and went into meditation, he told Jagannath Mishra, your son is Narayana. What did Mahaprabhu say? No, it's not true. I know in my last life I was a cowherder and therefore in this life, because I took care of cows nicely, I got to take birth as a Brahmana. <laughs> that is his reasoning. But the Brahmana is a teacher. Mahaprabhu's Leela is Achardi Leela, the Leela of teaching us how to surrender. And we have to move, as Bhagavad also says, Tadara Jastamu Bhava Kama Lovada Yastaje Cheta Etaran Abhidham Sitam Satve Prasidati. From Rajaguna, Tamaguna, these influences to Satvaguna, to transcendence. But as I say, that great teacher, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that great Brahmana, such a well-balanced person, everyone loved him in all of Nadia. The joy of everyone was Nimai Pandit. Valedictorian, best in the class, president of the school, teaching even, in the school, when he returned from East Bengal and got his mantradiksha from Ishwarpuri returned to Gangadas Pandit's school of Sanskrit grammar. Mahaprabhu himself was given an appointment as teacher to teach. And of course he taught every word, every syllable of Sanskrit language indicates Krishna. And why only Sanskrit? <laughs> All languages come from that we're taught. It's called Devanagari. There must be a way to see everything in relation to Krishna because everything is related to him. Mahaprabhu, so he was a teacher even in the school, top of the class, the hometown hero, perfectly integrated, well-balanced, and happy person. His life was so happy, he had everything going for him. Materially, everyone wanted him. All the Vaishnavas wanted him in their group before he showed himself as a Vaishnav. If anyone was disturbed with him, it was only the Vaishnavas who would argue with him and they would try to convert him to Vaishnavism. He said, later I will become a Vaishnav, no doubt. But now I'm busy with my studies. And they would tell him, oh, you're wasting your life. Imagine their joy then when Nimai Pandit became a Vaishnav. How the current wave went throughout all of Nadia. Nimai Pandit has become a Vaishnav. Nimai Pandit has become a Vaishnav. And what kind of Vaishnav? Then we come to what Mahaprabhu is really teaching. And this is a very esoteric thing. We began talking about this human life. We sang the song, Oh, I've wasted my human life. And we talked a little bit about human life and our bodily, psycho-physiological makeup and how in the beginning we were taught 
one thing about it and another thing about ourself, the soul, the unit of consciousness, the two are different. And we may get a certain take on this, that one is bad and the other is good, and there's some truth to that. But really, unless we understand our material involvement, I should say really understanding that is involved in transcending it. In fact, transcending it implies that you've understood it. So human life, very valuable, a great gift. What is the value of the human life? We don't know. Mahaprabhu told us, though, that it's very difficult to understand. In the beginning, we learned something about the human life, what it is from the scripture, how it's a particular embodiment, and as I said, what particular type of embodiment we have within the context of human life, and all these things have to be sorted out, and we have to move to be well-integrated and so forth, and with a view to, what? Transcend the whole affair. But what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu taught then makes our head spin. What did he say? Mahaprabhu taught something like this. Krishnera Jyotheka. Krishnera Jyotheka Sarvottama Naralila. Naravaputahara Swarup. He said, human life is everything. This human life is everything. He said, why? Of all of the Leelas of God, Nara Leela, his Leela as a human being, Sarvottama, this is the highest. God's fullest expression of himself in love takes place in human society. He came to human society to do that because human society facilitated that. In a materialistic world, it's thought that the human beings are the dominant species because they are the fittest to survive. In other words, it's the highest because of our power to dominate, to control, to suppress, to stamp out if, as need be. Survival of the fittest. Humans are the fittest. Mahaprabhu also said the human society is the highest thing. He said it doesn't get any better than this. Those Nityaparshads of Krishna and Golok, they're always aspiring to come here. Always. And take part in the Naralila. That is the highest thing in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. To be a full human being, what does it mean? Mahaprabhu said humanity is the highest thing because not because they can dominate other species and therefore live. We have to eat to live. We have to live to love. We need to eat to live, but we have a need also to live. For what? For loving. Human beings have that need. Other species, they need to eat. But we can be fed all day, but there's still something missing. We need to love. This is what we live for. This human life is for loving. And Krishna appears as human to fulfill his own ideal of love. That is his Naralila. So to be fully human means, in Mahaprabhu's understanding, to fully understand love. The highest, this love of Krishna, his Naralila, Nijasama Sakasange, there he is, Nijasama Sakasange, Gogana Charana Range, Bindavane, 
स्वच्छंद भी हा है कृष्ण विद इज ऑन इक्वल्स फ्रेंड्स जस्ट लाइक हिमसेल्फ नीजर समाज के सोंगे इन देयर कंपनी गोगोना चारोना रोंगे हैप्पीली इन अ हैप्पी मूड हर्डिंग अनलिमिटेड कैउस वृंदावन इन वृंदावन स्वच्छंदा बिहार केयरफ्री पास्ट टाइम्स दिस इज द कृष्ण ऑफ महाप्रभु दिस इज द गॉड ऑफ चैतन्य महाप्रभु इट सेड गोपवेश नतोबार he described him he appears like gopa like a cow herder he's an expert dancer he carries the flute and the implication is all these things are very suitable for human life four hands is not very suitable to move in and among the humans all of this is very suitable mahaprabhu taught the human life is the highest because in human life we have the opportunity to love and krishna comes to express god comes to express his fullest idea of love in human society and we should interface our propensity for loving with that appearance of krishna in human society and the result will be that we don't have to go anywhere we don't have to as the closer we come you see to understanding this idea the more the idea of moksha liberation becomes uh, undesirable therefore mahaprabhu taught love krishna and love krishna involves loving everyone be a lover be a giver if you start loving your situation by understanding what it really is there are no problems there's only service we see it as a problem but from a higher perspective at service that's all somebody wants something that's a problem that guy wants this nobody leaves me alone don't try to be left alone get this out of your heart pisachi it's a witch rupa goswami taught liberation i want to get away from it all no to be fully involved with the right understanding as you can see this is fairly esoteric idea that's what krishna's appearance in human society comes to tell us krishna is fully god and fully human it also means that in human life we can realize fully our spiritual potential somewhere in his writings nathan goswami prabhu has said that if you really understand with this gaudiya vaishnavism then and you see krishna you will see him just like in india he said one of those cowherd boys one of those boy this is a dirty little fellow in a you know with a stick calling the cows just like that no flashing effulgence and crown and all human completely human like fullest expression of god appearing in human society to fully express himself because the idea is human society is about loving that's why it's superior so we should start to do that to learn that and try to run away from our material life understand what it is and there's a beginning to all that as i'm describing understand your material situation for what it really is what are these modes of nature what is the material world it's bhagavato gunamaya as parikshit mar said it's not unconnected from god it's fully connected
one of his shaktis. Of course, we have to think about it in both ways. We have to think about, oh, at some point it's a problem, but we have to ultimately understand that the problem is our way of thinking about it. That's all. So adjust your thinking, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur said, religion means proper adjustment. Hmm? Just a slight adjustment, that's all, and the whole picture changes. So try to be practical, this is my advice to you, humbly, in your spiritual lives. Try to understand as best you can the theory of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, theoretical knowledge, and understand with good help where you are in all of that practice and situate yourself properly and be happy and practice. And practice means that in everything you do, you practice that. Practice being better people. You've got to at least do that if you're going to go to Goloka or go realize what, what Krishna Leela. You have to be a better person on every level. It's not that we just chant Hare Krishna and read some books and we've got all this thing. We go around and tell everybody about it and beat him over the head and see, we know more than you do. We may know much less than them, actually, if that's our attitude. Don't let the high theory let your head become swollen and proud because you've understood something about it. It's supposed to make our hearts humble that we have graciously been allowed to be involved in this thing that is so far beyond us, so high, so that my heart is humble. And I go and beg to offer people, let me tell you about how happy I am, how lucky I am, my good fortune. You see, if you really feel fortunate, then you want to tell people about it and people will be interested. He's getting something from this. He's happy about it. It's doing something for him, for her. So make your practice comprehensive, far-reaching, and real in every respect. This is a strong emphasis of Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasati Thakur. I'm, of course, explaining it in a, in a different way, perhaps, but this is a strong emphasis. Know your capacity, what is your adhikar, and go from there. And let the practice be, as I say, comprehensive in every respect. That people come to know, as Prabhupada would like to say, oh, that they are first-class people. So if we go in this way practically, then in time, we'll be able to understand something of what Mahaprabhu taught. And it's very, very, it really is quite esoteric. The idea that the human stage is the place of ultimate spiritual experience. The highest spiritual potential can be realized in human society. Any question? As you were speaking, I was also thinking about sometimes especially in the beginning of spiritual life, but throughout our progress, we're also asked to accept austerity and uh, perform some penance in a way, or what may be to us penance. So could you maybe elaborate on, as we progress in our spiritual life, how we balance the feeling that I'm performing some austerity, maybe this doesn't feel good right now, eventually it will, with feeling good about where you are, where you're at. Because sometimes, um, mm -hmm. sometimes our mind may say, well, you know, you're really here and, you know, you should just kind of take it easy and, you know, progress will come. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, I really need to accept some less, you know, take a cold bath or, you know, do something when I don't feel like doing it. Or, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you harmonize those two things? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing is that uh, 
what we have to do is, is we, we have to work. And we really have to work hard at whatever it is we're doing. And, and in the right frame of mind, basically with a sense of detachment from the results, that I'm not the enjoyer of them. But in our present position, for the most part, we have to keep busy. We have to work hard. That may appear as uh, an austerity. I mean, we're not advocating that just uh, feely, touchy, you know, be happy and don't do anything. Imagine yourself into a happy state of mind. Real happy state of mind, real sattvic condition, is a result of fully applying yourself in the position that you're in or that you're supposed to be in that's appropriate for you and working hard at it. So you should try to be the best at whatever field it is that, uh, that you're involved in and that's going to involve some pain. Austerity, tapa, also means knowledge. When we perform some austerity, when we, let's say, tax ourselves physically, then we have to think about why we're doing that, because we're feeling the pinch of that. Huh. So, therefore, there's a connection between austerity and knowledge, because you think about it and you go, yeah, well, I'm, there's a reason I'm doing this, and it's, it's good, that's a good reason, and yeah, so I'm... I'll do that, and I'll work harder, and the pinch is actually good for me. That's the kind of happiness we want, you see. That's the sattva that begets real knowledge and, and real happiness. Sattva, again, is knowledge, and sattva is happiness. That happiness that transforms into sadness, that so-called happiness is from the rajaguna. Hmm? But that happiness that endures and that arises from some type of austerity, that happiness corresponds with knowledge and understanding and is progressive. So when I say that we should be happy, we should know what happiness is. It's something that, it's happiness that as a result of illumination, deeper thinking, deeper understanding of what I'm involved in and why I'm involved in. And as I say, that requires some Austerity, in the sense that whatever we're doing, as in our devotional life, of course, in general, then we want to work with a sense that, as far as we can, I'm not the doer, and I'm not the enjoyer of the results of my work. Obviously, at some point in our lives, as householders, for example, we need to take something to live. Even monks are allowed to take whatever they can beg to sustain themselves physically, to perform their practices and so forth. So as householders, we have to, we have greater responsibility of the work and we have to take something, but we should take what we need to keep ourselves fit and think that the real fruit of our work should be spent for the things that we really, uh, are really important. Gaudi Vaishnavism, if we household, we're connected with some mission of sadhu or something like that, then we try to help them by our wealth, by our intelligence and our worldly experience and connections and so forth to get things done, make things happen, especially for uh, assisting a preaching mission. So, at any rate, I think that's uh, the answer to your question. Otherwise, work 
and sometimes renunciation is associated with austerity as opposed to work. I'm explaining work as an austerity. Right. Sometimes renunciation is uh, described as an austerity, and it is, but really the renounced state or the idea of renunciation is more involved with the direct culture of spiritual life, whereas working according to our propensity, giving the fruits to Krishna, is more of a indirect culture of spiritual life. That is meant to bring us to a condition of purified heart and a resolve for spiritual life, and it begets knowledge, as I described, and when that is sufficiently awakened in the heart, then one can naturally move in the direction of renunciation and the corresponding activities that involve the direct culture of spiritual life. These two things like seem like opposites, and it's a confusion for Arjuna and Bhagavad Gita. In the third chapter, Krishna tells him to work, and in the fifth chapter, he tells Karmasana to give up work. But they're actually the same thing, but at different stages for different persons. And, of course, all this is, there's a lot of gray in between. It's not just, well, today I'm a householder, tomorrow I'm a sannyasi. There's no renunciation in householder life. There, there is. It's, all, it's also about renunciation proportionate to our uh, understanding. And that renunciation is about giving up things that really aren't helpful for me at this point in my life or what's important to me spiritual progress. And of course, you know, these are, these, what we're talking about here are like basic uh, karma yoga, gyan yoga, karma sannyas yoga, and so forth. These things are not entirely separate from bhakti. Bhakti is that far overreaching and high extending grace of God and discipline that includes all those other things, the fruits of all of them inside of it. So in our culture of bhakti, where are we at in that culture of bhakti? We should see, in terms of these things, is my heart becoming purified, and uh, is knowledge coming in? And then, if so, well, then I can move in the direction of renunciation. If not, then I stay in this situation, and so on. Yeah. Another question. In the lives of some of our acharyas, we see that although they have, to our vantage point, deep realization of the eternal plane, maybe even having some darshan of that plane, or mm. um, fully situated in that plane. Yet the symptoms of their feeling, their ecstasy, their you know, appreciation, they conceal those or contain those to a large degree. To not, from one perspective, make it cheap or be mixed up with those who are imitators and for so many reasons. Yet we also see that there are certain personalities like Bumsi Das, Babaji Maharaj, mm-hmm. and there are times where Shore Das, Babaji Maharaj, who didn't do that. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to get a little idea of, or wanted to ask you, a little, get a little perspective on, on how that is other than just Krishna's will. Well, it's because the one sector is is not involved with the world. Another sector of Vaishnavas, as high as they may be, remain involved with the world. 
you have the two divisions given by Bhaktivinoda Thakur of Bhajananandi or Vivekananandi and Agostyanandi. So Agostyanandi means, Agosti means he does keep the company of others. Vivekananandi means he, he's alone. So persons like Bhamsidas Babaji, they were alone in doing all those things. That's one point. Right. <laughs> they were just with themselves doing their bhajan and they didn't want anybody around them. And if you really find those people in the Braj, there may be some, they are alone and they don't really want to be around anybody and it's very hard to find them. And they aren't the people that are just given out to the pranali everywhere. In fact, they'll tell you don't bother with those people if you have the chance to meet them. If they talk to you in, in a language you can even understand. So they're to themselves, for one. The other group is not to themselves, they're in the public, in the public view. and their preoccupation and their whole approach to Gaudiya Vaishnavism is an outreach, is preaching. So there's some decorum that goes with the preaching that involves, as we've been talking, engaging people according to what they're suited for and so forth and sharing appropriately. So unless they meet somebody that that they can share with those kind of things, in close circles, they're not inclined to share them with everybody where they'll be misunderstood. Because love is such a thing that it wants to share itself and announce itself to the whole world. But it quickly finds out, oh, I can't. It's like if you love somebody, just materially speaking, you just want to tell everybody. But then you find out, ah, they didn't appreciate. You just go up and say, you know what? I love her. And the guy looks at you like, you know, so what? I mean, <laughs> I ain't got anything else to do. <laughs> Let me alone. Uh, you quickly realize, like, oh, I've got to privatize this. This is a very special thing. I, so special, I want to give it to everybody, tell everybody, but everybody else doesn't appreciate it. So I have to privatize that. And then it's uh, drawn within. So even materially speaking, we do that. So what to speak of love of Krishna? We talk about it in a general way that will help people to pursue that. But... And, and, and through that, some of our feeling for that will, will certainly be shared, but much beyond that is probably counterproductive. Too personal. Yeah. It won't help the people. I mean, the teacher has to be able to talk to us to some extent, through his agents or himself, and convey to us. and So he has to come on our level to some extent. And that's the greatness. I like to think of Prabhupada in that light because in many respects Prabhupada spoke on a very, very basic level. And if you say that to some people they think, oh, how can you say that? Prabhupada was so great. You see, people like to talk about what they're preoccupied with. That's very natural. So if I'm very preoccupied with something very, very high, but for the sake of other people who can't understand that, I come down to their level. That's real greatness. That's real kindness. Not only Prabhupada, but Ahimi was a good example of that. <laughs> I many times spoke with him and saw him just wrestling himself down to deal with me, my reality, and, and talk to me. And it, the talks were about spiritual things, too. <laughs> so... That is this kindness and greatness certainly will be will show itself mostly to us in the form of kindness.
we need the kindness, grace. Anything else? All right, we'll stop there. Very nice to be here tonight. Hare Krishna. Guru Vaishnav Guru Parampara ki jai. Desi Bhakti Vidanta Swami Prabhupada ki jai. Bhakti Rakhya Sridhi Goswami Maharaj ki jai. Bhakti Bhakti Goswami Maharaj ki jai. Sri Bhakti Siddhanta Sastri Thakur Prabhupada ki jai. Guranga Mahaprabhu ki jai. Sisi Gaurana Tinanda ki jai. Sisi Radha Dev ki jai. Gaur Bhakta Vinda ki jai. Gaur Premanandi.